Today, I want to talk about our mission together. You know, we've been talking about prayer, dangerous prayers, bold prayers, and now I want to transition to talk about our mission so we can focus those bold and dangerous prayers on what God's calling us to do. So if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to Acts, the New Testament book of Acts chapter 2, and I want to read verses 40 to 47. Our custom here at Union Chapel is to stand to hear God's word, so thanks for doing that as you're able. This is the day of Pentecost, and the, and the apostle Peter has stood up now in front of thousands of people, and he's concluding his remarks on that day with the following words. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. And all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. May God encourage, instruct us, inspire us through his word today. You may be seated. Thanks so much. I was challenged uh, some years ago by a person who was not being altogether positive when he said to me, uh, you're trying to set Christianity back 50 years. And I said, no, sir, uh, I'm actually trying to set Christianity back 2,000 years. I believe that God's original intent and design for the church can be found, clearly defined here in the book of Acts as this first century, first believers in Christ began to assemble themselves and order their lives. I, uh, I believe in the church. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That's Matthew 16, 18. I, I make the church the priority of my life, in fact. And I believe that it's God's primary agent, central to his plan, to change the world. Bill Hybels said it this way, the local church is the hope of the world. So there are people in today's world, though, uh, who are seeking to deconstruct some of the great traditions and values, even of our faith, and are trying to re redefine the church to include anything that looks religious. And I think it's a mistake. As a result, the church for many has become an anomaly. We don't understand what the church is about. We don't understand its value. We don't appreciate its purpose. And so today I want to talk about the authentic church. I want to put clear parameters around what we should expect when we think about the church and what it looks like and how it should live its life. So... There are many people in our world today who are doing many good things. They are digging wells for people who need fresh water, noble cause, people extending medical care and other humanitarian aid kinds of activities. But that isn't necessarily the church. They have to listen to me today. You have to listen carefully. If we lose sight of the authentic church, then we lose our way. Now remember, the church is a God thought, God wrought, God planned, God designed instrument to reach the world for Jesus Christ. 
the church of Jesus Christ is the primary means by which this gospel gets communicated to the world. God doesn't have a plan B or a plan C. His plan is the, the local church as the means by which this hopeful good news is disseminated around the world. So what is the authentic church? What is it? And it's an interesting question and a very important question to answer. Let me just begin, this is on your outline, with five defining characteristics of the local church that I think represent authenticity. Here's the first one. The church is a place to experience a meaningful relationship with Jesus Christ. The church is a place to find Christ. It's a place where you can become saved. This is the phrase that we find in the New Testament model. For example, here in Acts 2, with many other words, Peter testified, exhorted them saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. How many of you know that's a pretty good day? It's a good day, 3,000 souls. And so on the day of Pentecost, we recognize that the church is a place to find Christ, a meaningful relationship with, with him. I want to ask you this question. How many, of you, how many of you found a meaningful relationship with Jesus Christ in the context of a local church? That, that was true for you. This would be about 50% of the people in the room, just uh, on average. Um, Billy Graham, you know, the late uh, Dr. Billy Graham popularized uh, the invitation, you know, uh, this, uh, this altar call kind of phenomenon. This has been in play in churches uh, in, and in crusade ministries, that sort of thing, for about 150, 175 years. Um, and it, many people over the past a century and a half or so have exercised this technique. But people are exposed to Jesus in the life of the church through preaching and teaching and classes and mission initiatives and small groups and, and the rest. But regardless of the context in which we found a meaningful relationship with Jesus, it almost always occurs in the context of a meaningful relationship. You have relational equity with numbers of people and because of that relational equity, it gives you influence in people's lives. And all, almost all of us were influenced by someone who cared enough about us to either offer Christ to us or to share their, their story with us or invite us to a special meeting where we encountered Christ. The transformative power of God through salvation is designed to happen best through the life of the church. Amen. And so here, now here's the, here's the second thing. The church is also a place where believers follow Jesus in baptism. In baptism. Acts 2.41, then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added. Now, not only was that a big moment when people by the thousands were receiving Christ, but it also indicates they were baptized that day. That's a lot of water and a lot of time. Um, and what a, what a great day. Some of you know the name of my best friend in the world, Mark Beeson. Mark uh, passed away uh, about 10 months ago. And Mark uh, started a church, planted a church in South Bend, Indiana called Granger Community Church. And he pastored that church for 33 years before he passed. We actually know the number of people that Mark baptized in the life of his church over those 33 years. And these are adults that were baptized uh, at Granger Community Church in those years, and the number is 7,146. 
Yeah, that's a big wow. That's a wow, big wow, wow. Now, yeah. Mark's in heaven today, and, um, and we talked about this before, before he died, and I speculate that the reason that Mark got to go to heaven ahead of me is because I'm going to need extra years to try to catch up with the number of baptisms. Over the years at Union Chapel, uh, we know approximately the number of folks that we've baptized We've baptized about 2,500 people over the years, and the churches that we have planted here and there around the world, we reckon, have baptized another 2,500 or so. And so we're, we're around 5,000 people that we've baptized over the years. And so as you can see, I've got a couple of thousand more to go before uh, God will let me go to heaven and be with my friend again. In the home of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, it said, Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received just as we have. And so we see this as a marker in the New Testament, a defining characteristic of the New Testament church where people are being baptized. Let me ask you a question. Maybe you're online today and and tuning in from some other church. Maybe you're just checking us out or maybe you're visiting today with family or friends. Let me ask you this question about whatever church you associate with. Are people receiving Christ in your church? If people are not receiving Christ in your church, then you are not in an authentic church because this is a defining characteristic. In fact, the primary purpose and mission of a local church is to reach people to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. So are people receiving Christ in the context of your local church? And secondarily, are people being baptized in your church? And so you're just being judgmental. I'm just reading the Bible trying to help us get a good definition of what the church is. At Union Chapel this year, we'll baptize about 70 or 80 adults. We just baptized 20 people a couple of weeks ago. So it's a challenging question, isn't it? So, you know, when people are, when people are selecting churches, this is one piece of advice I give them. Look for a church that's leading people to Jesus. Look for churches that are regularly baptizing people into the faith. This stuff matters. This is, the, this is the, the authenticity of the church and expression. So the church is a place where people follow Jesus in baptism. Here's number three. And that is the church is a place devoted to the apostolic faith. Verse 42 from our text today says, they continually and steadfastly submitted to the apostles' doctrine. James Montgomery Boyce wrote years ago, there are a lot of things that we could have said about the early church from the book of Acts. As we go on, we find out it was a joyful church. It was an expanding church. It was a vibrant church. But he stresses that in these early days, in spite of the experience as great as Pentecost, when they could have been focused on and fixated on all of the experiences of the day of Pentecost with all the pyrotechnics and the move of the Spirit of God and manifestations, they could have been focused on that But instead, the disciples devoted themselves first to the teaching of the Word of God. Now, let me cast some vision for you about what we're going to do here at Union Chapel next year. Very excited about this. This past August, we hosted a church planting conference in Fort Collins, Colorado. Many of you know that. One of our keynote speakers for the conference was a gentleman by the name of Randy Frazee. 
Randy has a long history of Christian leadership in churches in the United States. He was a, a preaching associate for Bill Hybels at Willow Creek Community Church in Chicago. Willow Creek, when the history books are written of our generation of Christian influence in, in North America and the world, uh, Willow Creek will be in the first chapter. Mega church, very influential church. Randy Frazee, as an associate there at Willow, after many years of a particular style of worship and inviting people into the, into the church, they wanted to know how effective their ministries had been at actually developing fully devoted followers of Jesus. Is what we're doing actually maturing people in a deeper relationship with Christ? Is it working? And so they developed this survey called Reveal. And they served the survey to tens of thousands of people, so it's a pretty reliable science. They discovered that there were two things, two of the top things that they discovered people responded in saying that these are the things that was most meaningful to us in our maturity of, in our faith, growing in fully, uh, fully devoted followers of Jesus. The second thing Randy reported was a distant second, but the second thing is service to others. Now, that's intuitive, isn't it? that the more I serve others, the more that helps me personally. It grows me, makes me more mature as a follower of Jesus when I'm acting like Jesus as a servant. And so serving others was second on the list, but it was a distant second to the number one thing that people claimed was the most important thing that helped them grow in their faith. And the number one thing on this survey, the Reveal survey, was an understanding of the Bible. Randy Frazee then, describing this story to us in August in Colorado, he said, how often in Christian leadership do you find that the greatest desire that people have in their Christian life and the greatest need that they have in their Christian life actually merge at the same point? And in this case, it's true that the greatest desire people have in their spiritual life and the greatest need that they have is an understanding of the Bible. That's fascinating, isn't it? So as he described this, Randy said, you know, I began to pray and think about that. And I thought, how can I make an understanding of the Bible an easy thing to do? And he came up with this idea. I'm sure that he was inspired to do this. And he began to write a, a synopsis of the scripture. He called it the story. And what he has done is in 30 chapters, he unpacked the narrative of the scriptures, 66 books of the Old and New Testament, in chronological order. So 30 chapters in a book that he's written called The Story. 30 chapters that have about 10 or 12 pages in each chapter so that any, any old person, any old bloke like you or me can pick up this book called The Story and read the, the biblical narrative from Genesis to Revelation in 30 chapters, 10 or 12 pages each chapter, and get the, get the overview and a general understanding of the scripture in 30 weeks. And when you hear that, you go, that's brilliant. That's amazing. He's put the whole thing in 30 chapters in chronological order 
so that you can just see the whole epic of history through the biblical narrative. Amazing. When I describe that to you, you go, go, that makes sense to me. I'd like to get my hands on that. Okay, here's what we're going to do. Beginning on January 30th, 2020, we are going to start the story. We are going to spend 30 of the 52 weeks or so next year on the weekends unpacking the biblical narrative in chronological order. Beginning January 30, we are going to start in Genesis 1-1. We're going to talk about creation in the next week in chronological order. The story is a 300-page book because this is substantial, but again, it's just it's chopped up into 30 chewable bites, 10 or 12 pages. Anybody can do this. There are charts, there, there are diagrams. It's large print. Anybody can do this. It's brilliant. And because we know Randy Frazee now, he's our buddy, these books are typically $20 a piece, but we are going to sell them in packages of four for $20. So here's, what, here's what's going to happen. We're going we're gonna to package these in four volumes, and it will cost $20 for the whole stack. You keep one for your own reading, and you give three of them to people you know you have relational equity with, people who are outside of the faith, who may be far from God, people you love and care about, and you have relationship and trust with, and you give them a copy and then invite them to come and partake. Because just about everybody wants to understand the Bible. It's one of those things that lots of people desire, all Christians do, and as it turns out, everybody needs. So the desire and need merges on this important subject. And we are going to go from January 30 all the way to the end of June, and we'll go all the way through the Old Testament in chronological order at the high points and these epics of the biblical narrative. And then beginning just after Labor Day and, and just before Thanksgiving, a year from now, we will finish the New Testament. It's going to be phenomenal. Now, here's my, here's the vision. If this is something people desire and people need at the same time, this has a lot of potential, doesn't it? To reach people and to help people. Not not only is the pastor going to learn some of the Bible, I'm anxious to study it myself and and see what I'm going to learn. There's no better way to learn than to prepare to teach. And so here's my opportunity and all of our opportunities. And how many people do you know who would really relish the opportunity to learn more about the Bible? And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to employ you with these extra books to invite people to be part of this. How many of you believe we can reach a lot of people for Jesus next year doing this? Uh, it's going to be fantastic. It's going to be great. So to summarize, a spirit-filled, faithful, authentic church will be careful to embrace and teach the apostolic faith. By the way, there are the materials, there are materials uh, with the story for all age levels. So your children in the children's department and your youth in the youth department and your young adults and everyone else are going to be studying the same things together each week all through the year. It's going to be great. It's going to be fantastic. Now, the following statement, let me just drive this home. And again, I need you to listen. The following statement has been attributed to Martin Luther of the Protestant Reformation, but we're not sure where it originated. Maybe it was from him, maybe not. But it's been widely embraced, and it says this. Maybe you've heard this statement before. Always preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. Have you heard that? 
And when I heard that the first time, I thought, yeah, that's right. That's a, that's a good statement. But, but I, I've given this some thought. And in the context of this, uh, this sermon, this message, let me, I've concluded this. I don't think it's a good statement. In fact, it's not a biblical statement. Let me explain. You've got to stay with me. It's, a, it's an erroneous statement because there is no such thing as a gospel without words. Think about that. You can't preach the gospel without words. The, 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 the word is contained in the scriptures, and then it penetrates our hearts, the truth of it, and then it comes out of our mouths. Romans 10, 17, Paul said, then faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. So without the content of the message of the gospel, no one can take the steps necessary to find a meaningful relationship with Christ. There are two things required when people come to Jesus. One is the word of God, the truth, and the other is the spirit of God. That sense that God is drawing me to himself as I find meaning in the truth of the gospel. So helping and serving and healing and educating and digging wells and doing medical stuff and assisting people is a Christian ethic. This is what Christians do. Appropriately, this is what we do. It's called ministry to the poor. But it is not enough until you offer people Christ. You can offer people a cup of cold water, but that's not the church until you say, here's a cup of cold water in Jesus' name. So faith without works is dead, James tells us. Likewise, works without words also fall short of the Great Commission mandate to make disciples. Are you okay with that? That's why the Apostle Paul said, again, Romans 10, how then can they call on the one they've not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. So you understand the importance of the words and the importance of speaking the words and communicating the words. There's much being done that's good by Christians, of course, around the world, making the strategic mistake of not also using words to offer Christ to the people being served. Say it again. It's impossible to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ without words. Let me just drive it home a little bit further. The gospel is content. It's a list of actions God has taken to redeem us from our sins. So it's important to know the truth because it's the truth that sets us free. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. Here's the fourth thing. It's on your outline. The church is a place to connect with other people. All right, so can we summarize? Here's the summary. Watch this. The authentic church is a place where people find a meaningful faith in Christ. You got it? It is a place where people follow Jesus in baptism. This big witness for Jesus, this big advertisement for Jesus in front of people symbolic of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ in baptism. Third, people submit to the apostolic faith. You understand the people who wrote the gospels, these were men who with their eyes saw Jesus alive, saw Jesus crucified, saw him the third day rise from the dead. These are eyewitness accounts. And of course, making their witness reliable. And so we teach this apostolic faith. Then fourthly, we know that God calls us into community, into connection, into fellowship. Now listen, we live in a postmodern, post-Christian culture. Much of our cultural uh, values are being deconstructed. 
Things that we once held sacred now being torn down, deconstructed. And if you only engage in secular culture, then you're going to conform to the image of the secular culture. And you don't want to do that. So we're living in a world where the current is against people who embrace traditional values and believe the Bible true. So we need each other. We need support. We need community. We, we need the strength of being together in this. And so God calls us into fellowship, which is a Greek word that simply means partnership or sharing or having things in common. Someone just defined it this way. Fellowship is like two fellows on the same ship. <laughs> two fellows on the same ship. We're together in this. John Stott said the word fellowship was born on the day of Pentecost. It's a reminder to us that the Christian life is not to be lived in isolation. And it is not. Now, having said all of that, let me, just, uh, let me just talk to you a little bit about online experience. We have this phenomenon right now online. We have hundreds of people tuning into our services every weekend online. And this, of course, is a result of the pandemic and the reaction response to that. Folks hesitant to get together in groups like this. And so they're at home or in other places online. And wonderful. That's great. Fantastic. The technology's there. Let's utilize any and all technology available to offer people Christ. I'm all in. No one could be more committed to it than I am. We're doubling down here at Union Chapel on our online presentation and trying to figure out better ways to get people connected online. I was at a, a, a conference in Nashville a couple of months ago, an exponential conference, if you're familiar with that organization, where they had this shark tank kind of setting where young people, mostly Generation Z and a few in the, the uh, uh, young, or, yeah, young millennial generation making presentations. I mean, they were actually trying to sell their idea on how to plant new churches around the world, and they were, they were shark tanking, and so they were going to be awarded grants based on who, who made the best presentation, the most compelling vision. It was fascinating. And so I'm there listening to 15 of these young people talking about one of these guys said, I, I am out to plant churches among all the gaming community in the world. Some of you are sensitive to this. The, the age group is about 35 years and younger. There are, listen, hundreds of millions of people in this age group who go online on a regular basis and they, and they game. And they, they get on and they, they compete with each other by the hundreds of millions so this guy said, I'm going to plant churches among gamers, and I'm going to get them in, in little side rooms online and connect them in community and tell them about Jesus. And we all just thought, you go, boy. That's great. Now, having said all that, and, I, and I'm convinced that there's no going back to pre-COVID. We're always going to be doing online stuff. It's always going to be there, and, and the technology is just going to get more popular and more advanced, and we can't even, it's changing so quickly, you can't keep up with it. I'm an old guy, and what I'm about to say, you might accuse me of being an old guy, but I, but I want to say this. For emerging generations, online technology and connectivity may be popular and, and may be fun and may be the future in a lot of ways in terms of reaching people for Jesus, and I'm all for it. Having said that, online connection is not a biblical definition of the church. 
Now, again, look, I, let me qualify this. I think we should use every means possible, and we will, and we do, and as we're doubling down. We're, we've just ordered a bunch of new lights to make it brighter on the stage because it'll look better online. So, you know, don't bark at me for not trying. <laughs> but here's my point. I'm simply saying that the biblical model of church is a Christian life that is lived in physical proximity to other believers. Amen. I mean, actually touching people. Face to face with people. And, and I get it. You can, ah, you're just old and you don't get it. You're just not an old geezer. Get out of the way. Look, you know, we're taking over now. Just you've had your time, now move. <laughs> Before you push me to the side... I want you to hear me out. Let me ask you this question. When you get to heaven, do you expect to see Jesus? Do you? You expect to see him like with your eyes? Do you expect to see him face to face? Do you expect to actually come into physical proximity to Jesus when you get to heaven? How about your loved ones? How about your close friends? You know, you can ask me about, do you expect to be close to Mark Beeson, you know, someday in heaven? Of course, absolutely, yes. What if you get to heaven and you go, you know, I'm looking, I just wanted to sit, where is Jesus? Oh, well, Jesus knew you were coming and he's not real crazy about being close to you. But he's gonna be on a Zoom next week. On Thursday, we're gonna send you the link and you can go on. Now, there are going to be a lot of people on the link, but you'll be able to see Jesus, you know, sort of, on the screen. He'll be really, the more people there are, the more tiny he'll be in the square. But you can kind of see him then. How does that feel? Does that feel fulfilling? Does that feel like that's going to be enough? That's adequate? <laughs> Do you see? I've just won your argument, haven't I? I just got you on that, with that illustration, didn't I? I hope I did. I hope I did. And so we say, of course, of course, in heaven, we'll all be together in physical proximity. So, so if, you, if you're going to be close to Jesus and your loved ones and your dear friends, then in the church, shouldn't we expect to be in physical proximity to other people? I think so. And while all of the online technology is useful and strategic, I mean, we've got... One of our house churches in Central Asia right now, they meet on a certain day of the week, and when the group meets in an apartment in Central Asia, there are two other members of the small group. One of the guys is in Thailand, and the other guy's in Russia, and they zoom in to the, to the house church. Okay, that's fantastic, but it's just, it's just not the ideal. It's useful, and we're going to use it in strategic ways, but it's just not the best. So what we have now in the United States are people who have gotten used to watching online and becoming less and less regular with their physical proximity to the life of the church. And so right now there are people, and this isn't to impugn anybody, I'm just saying out loud, you're hanging out on the couch in your pajamas with a cup of coffee and all of that's fine, while others of us are working and serving and loving and preaching and caring for one another. I just put my hands on a bunch of precious babies. I couldn't zoom that in. You know, when God, when God decided to save the world by sending his own son, you know, he didn't send an Instagram. 
He sent Jesus in the flesh. That's called the incarnation. Hey, look, we have a baby born of a virgin, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried, but the third day rose from the dead and ascended to heaven. Amazing. We have this faith. And so you hear, you hear my concern. Let me just encourage you this way. Open your hearts to one another. This is the fellowship piece. Tell your stories, share your joys and sorrows. Pray for one another. Live in community. Live in proximity to each other. We have three requirements for people here at Union Chapel. Three desires for you. One, attend our services. Number two, join a small group. Number three, volunteer to serve. Attend our services. Get in a small group, a fellowship circle, a small group, and volunteer to serve. We have our mission statement is help people know Jesus. We do that in our services. Grow in your relationship with Jesus. You do that best in small groups. And go serving Jesus with others. So, so open your hearts. Second, open your hands to one another. If another has a need, help them. Food is served, clothes are gathered, cars are repaired, recovery homes are built. It's what we do. It's our ethic. It's a Christian practice. Number three, open your homes to one another. Invite members of your small group into your homes. Invite orphans and widows into your house. It makes a difference. This is the New Testament definition of the church and fellowship. Last point. Quickly, the church is people fulfilling their calling through mission and service. Caring for the poor, orphans, widows, intercessory prayer became a dynamic expression of the early church. We find this all in the book of Acts. And fear came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts. They were praising God, had favor with all the people. And every day there was added to the church, those who were being saved. This is the authentic church. This is who we aspire to be. This is what we aspire to reproduce here and there, the authentic church. One more story will be finished quickly. It's intended to be humorous. I've discovered that advising people that there's an attempt to be humorous will help people to respond to the humor. Otherwise, it may not get any response. A monk was new to the monastery. He was, he was assigned to speak in chapel the next week by his superior. And he rose and said, how many of you know what I'm going to say? No one responded. And he said, well, I don't know either. <laughs> and then he dismissed the group by saying, Dominus Vobiscum, which means the Lord be with you. And his superior was very upset with him. What are you doing? I asked you to do a little homily at the chapel. Now you have to do it next week. Get it right this time. Stop messing around. The next week he asked the same question. How many of you know what I'm going to say? Well, the brothers at the monastery trying to throw him off decided that they would all raise their hands. And he said, well, since you already know, I don't need to tell you. <laughs> Dominus Vobiscum. The Lord be with you. Now he got a severe reprimand, and he was made to speak the following week, and he slowly ascended the platform for yet the third time, and deliberately and surprisingly, he asked the same question he had twice before, when he said, how many of you know what I'm going to say? And the brothers trying to throw him off further, half of them agreed to raise their hand, which they did, and the other half didn't. 
And observing this phenomenon, the young priest said, well, the half of you know what I'm going to say. Tell the half of you who don't know what I'm going to say. <laughs> Dominus Vobiscum. Now, the, the story is, is humorous, of course, but it's also powerful. As I summarize this whole message by saying that those of you who know are to tell those who don't know the message of hope that we have found in Jesus Christ. We're living in an age right now where an entire emergent culture, generation of young people are saying, I want my life to count. I want to make a difference. I want to do something meaningful. I want to engage in all kinds of activities and, and related to justice and, and rightness and, and kingdom stuff. I, I want to make a difference in the world. Listen, let me just help you cut through all the obfuscation of the confusion you find trying to figure this out in today's world. How about just leaning down on this as the bottom line? How about make your mission in life to go to heaven, take as many people with you as you can? Go to heaven, take as many people with you as you can. Go to heaven, take as many people with you as you can. I promise you, a hundred years from now, all of the cares of the world that consume so many of us right now all the time will not matter at all. The only thing that will matter a hundred years from now in your life is who's in heaven and how much influence you had in their arrival there. Go to heaven, take as many people with you as you can. You think about that. Now let's pray. Lord, we thank you today for the clarification. We pray that you would help us to understand clearly your expectations for us, the church, the people of God. It's a place where people find Christ. It's a place where people are baptized. It's a place where the apostolic faith is embraced and your word is taught and received. It's a place where people live in community in the truest sense of the word, sharing their lives. Their hearts are, their hearts are open. Their hands are open. Their homes are open. We're in fellowship. And finally, Lord, it's a place where people serve. We serve one another, and we take this glorious good news of Jesus Christ, which is the hope of the world, to a waiting world. Thank you, God, for this clarity. Now give us grace and strength, we pray, in Jesus' name. And the people said, would you stand with us?